Hi everybody, my name is Natalie Hibbard, I'm 22 years old and I'm an author of young adult fiction from Petersfield in Hampshire in England. I've always wanted to be a writer, in fact even before I could hold a pen I was telling people I was going to write stories when I grew up. I would sit in front of my mum or my cousins or my big sister and I would dictate to them and I would get them to write it down f down for me. Uh, I always found that um, my best skill set was telling stories. There's a lot of things that I'm not good at. Um, one of which is walking. I'm really, really bad at walking um, because I have a condition called cerebral palsy, which affects a lot of people who have it in a lot of different ways um, but my particular variant means that I can't walk and I have to use a wheelchair to get about. When I was very young, when I was at home, this didn't present much of an obstacle from my point of view because my parents and in particular my mum were very uh, egalitarian I suppose you would say and they made sure that I didn't ever feel different um, from my sisters. I have two sisters. One of them's older than me and one of them is my twin. Uh, I was, you know, just as loved as they were and made to feel just as special and I got into just as much trouble as they did <laughs> and uh, more sometimes too. Uh, so even though I knew I was different from them and I faced different challenges, I didn't feel different. Uh, inside and I didn't feel hard done by and that I suppose is what gave me the confidence to start telling people what I wanted to do with my future when I was already when I was that young uh, things started to change for me for that from that point of view uh, when I went to school because I found that uh, not everyone is as accepting of all kinds of disabilities, but um, especially physical ones, as my family were. Uh, and this fairly quickly led to a lot of bullying, a lot of isolation. Um, and I would quite often hear uh, things said about me that uh, weren't true. Uh, and worse even than being untrue, they were unfair. And things being unfair is a big theme in my books and uh, certainly was a big theme in my life, especially at that time. Uh, when I was younger, I didn't have much in the way of friends um, because of how uh, isolated I was. To just um, digress for a moment, the, the kind of uniquely um, difficult position into which a person with a wheelchair is placed is that they're both invisible and very, very conspicuous at the same time. Uh, me meaning that everybody who walks into a room will see if there is a wheelchair in that room. Uh, but they won't often see the person inside of it. Uh, loneliness and mental health struggles can often make a person feel 
uh, invisible, but to feel like that and have a spotlight on you at the same time. Here's, I think, a slightly different set of challenges, and it's one that um, many, many of those with physical disabilities uh, have. So, um, to return to my story, I didn't have a lot of friends when I grew up, but what I did have was a lot of books. Um, I would spend many a uh, break time and lunchtime reading books. Sometimes I'd read the same book over and over again. Um, and the people in those books um, became my friends and my confidants. And it was in reading those books that I began to discover <laughs> that I wasn't alone in feeling the way I did. Um, I think that in particular is a big struggle that um, people with mental health issues and disabilities we have in common is that we feel alone a lot of the time even though those conditions and those circumstances affect huge numbers of people. Um, when I was around nine years old, my uh, negative experiences at school came to a head and um, I became so ill with depression and anxiety by the time I was nine that I had to, um, for a long time I didn't go to school and then, then when I did I had to move classes uh, because I was being harassed by uh, my original class teacher which um, was a fairly, <laughs> fairly uh, formative and hideous experience um, but that sparked in me an interest in power dynamics and the abuse of power by people who have it and shouldn't um, against people who don't have any power but who should um, and that again, uh, is a central theme in my books. Uh, time passed and in the midst of seeing many different counsellors and therapists and exploring different um, options for my medication and so on, I started writing a book. Um, I started writing the first draft of my first novel, Inside Out, when I was 12. Uh, by the time I was 14, the first draft was finished and that world and that universe that I built became two things for me it became first and foremost it became a safe place to be um, but it also became a place uh, where I could in a um in a slightly um different sort of way I could talk about the things that had made me feel unsafe and I used those things those prejudices those fears the rage the company did the pain I used all those things to build my universe and to build my career um I'll tell you a little um anecdote about being a disabled young person in Britain, I don't know about in the rest of the world, but I imagine it's the same, is that when you are in school, there is a thing that's held every year called an annual review. 
in which you go into a room and you sit at a table and a lot of adults, most of whom you haven't met before, will sit around and tell you basically how you can be improved, uh, what failings you have and how they think those things uh, need to be rectified. And a lot of things that um, one might consider private, so like uh, the state of your friendships, the state of your mental health, all those things, are brought out onto this table as a matter of course. And the people around the table feel that they have a right to uh, weigh in on those things. And this created many problems but the chief chief among them was that um my dearest ambition being a novelist uh, didn't require a university degree and so I would sit and I would tell people I'm not going to go to university when I grow up I am going to be a writer and although lots of writers do go to university and it feels right for them it didn't feel right for me uh this is a fairly innocuous statement um or at least i thought it was it just it was a fact um but this caused me an awful lot of grief because um for the entirety basically of my secondary and college education i had people telling me that i was too intelligent not to go to university and that I'd regret it and uh, some of them said that being a writer wasn't a realistic ambition and so to put all my eggs in that basket was uh, irresponsible and you know something that I would um, that I would very quickly come to realize was stupid Uh, none of that happened and when I was 21 Inside Out, which is my first book in which I've written about all these feelings I had, uh, was released. And um, it's interesting now uh, when I read it, when I'm preparing to do readings or um, if I get messages from readers and they quote their favourite passages at me, it's interesting to me to read the book and to see in it things I didn't see at the time um, but that represent to me a journey that I've been on with my physical and my mental health. Uh, The book is set in a parallel universe in which um, society is divided into two factions. You've got the insiders who are the haves, and the outsiders, who are the have-nots. They hate each other like poison, purely based on where they come from. And this age-old tradition leads to uh, chaos and misery. And for a lot of the people in the book, they're too young to remember when these traditions started, but their whole lives are defined by them. That idea of division and prejudice as a thing that uh, is just accepted 
is something that I have uh, an intellectual interest in, but I also have a more practical interest in it because it uh, affects my life in lots of ways. Um, and the story that I most often use to illustrate this is when I was in primary school, I think you would call it uh, elementary school. So when I was in elementary school and I walked into the foyer one day and on one of the walls, as you do in a school reception, they had this brightly coloured poster and on it they had put the school rules and the school ethos. Uh, and one of one of the school rules, one of the mission statements of the school was we pledge to help the needy and those less fortunate than us. And uh, without my knowledge, a picture of me, one of only two disabled students in the school, had been used to illustrate that statement. Uh, this told me at the age of seven that I wasn't an us, I was a them. And that I didn't belong in the same way as other people did. Uh, I did complain about it. And I found myself in a uniquely um, difficult position, I think, as a child. Of having to explain to my own headmaster why I objected so fiercely to being called needy, less fortunate and not one of us. It's very easy, I think, especially in times like now where everything has been heightened because of the terrible pandemic that we're all facing, to look for a, a scapegoat, um, a group of people or a person or a, a subsection of society upon whom you can direct your rage or your fear. And you can say, if they weren't here, my life would be better. And that they is a different, uh, different group or different person for everybody. And uh, particularly in politics at the moment, I think, there is a tribalism that I reflected as a young teenager as a dystopian vision. I'd always known the world to be a divisive place, but I hadn't really considered that it might one day within a very short period of time become so drastic that the book I'd written suddenly didn't seem like a dystopia anymore. It suddenly became much, much closer to a contemporary thriller than I would have hoped or than I would have liked. Uh, I expect many of you will appreciate this horror firsthand living in such a turbulent time in American politics, but um, for me, what really brought home my rage and my fury about this was the way the British government handled the pandemic. Uh, it's been nearly a year now, um, but I still remember very, very clearly last March and February 
listening to my Prime Minister on the uh, television news uh, stating quite categorically uh, that there was no need for a panic about coronavirus because only the elderly and clinically vulnerable would be severely affected. Now, I don't quite understand what the aim of this was. I expect it made a lot of people who were not elderly and not clinically vulnerable maybe feel slightly better and slightly more secure. Um, but for the rest of the world, for the rest of the country, for the elderly and for the clinically vulnerable and for the loved ones of those people as well, those people that have been so easily uh, scapegoated and dismissed by the people in power in just, you know, a few lines, um, that they'd been described essentially as expendable, um, not in those precise words, but one thing, if you grow up being bullied, you <laughs> learn to read between the lines, and that those lines were not particularly difficult to read between. Uh, of course, Mr Johnson and the rest of his government were proved wrong, tragically and horrifically, and ever since have been on the back foot, um, because they dismissed such a terrible global catastrophe as one that would only affect people who were vulnerable, and by implication, because it would only affect those people, it wasn't so much of a big deal, because they weren't so much of a big deal. So, and then, of course, the Prime Minister himself catches COVID and suddenly it becomes a big deal to him. Because it's his life that's on the line, not just the people that he's decided are the outsiders in his little uh, bubble. I think... That although it is perfectly true that everyone has struggled terribly with their mental health in the pandemic, I do think that those of us that have uh, diagnosed mental health conditions, that we're living with them before the pandemic. So myself, I have depression and anxiety and I have many friends across, across the world who have various other mental illnesses. It seems rather odd to me that, in my country at least, really it seems to have taken a pandemic in which everyone has become affected by mental health issues for people to go, oh, hang on, it might not be fair to dismiss everyone with mental health issues as uh, weak, attention-seeking... Um, there's a presenter in England who um, he's been through rather an image change uh, over the course of the pandemic because now he's a staunch advocate for the NHS and he believes in all kinds of high um, moral high ground things or at least he purports to uh, but merely a few weeks before the beginning of the pandemic, he sat in front of a man with mental health issues and told him to man up. And again, I think such drastic changes 
are brought about by a lot of things, but one of the things that's made it happen is that the people who you could look at and so easily go, oh, that's a them problem, it's not a me problem, suddenly we all have the same problem. And I don't think that's actually a new phenomenon. I think that's always been true. But some people are just more willing to acknowledge it than others. And as ghastly and terrible and horrific as this pandemic is, my one hope at a partial silver lining is that maybe having experienced things that they maybe dismissed before, so being physically vulnerable, mentally vulnerable, whatever it might be due to these horrendous circumstances in which the world finds itself. Having experienced those things, people won't find it so easy to dismiss them as not being important. One of my favourite things about my job, about my profession, and why I defended it to all those people who said it wasn't a real job, and why I feel so privileged and so honoured to be able to get to do it, is because reading has been proven in studies to engender empathy in the readers. Because reading allows people not only to escape from problems that they have, but also to experience problems that they have never had through identifying or empathising with people in books. Now, this applies largely to fiction books, but of course it applies to all fields. You know, books about the animal kingdom, people learning about, you know, environmentalism and the urgent need we have to save our planet books about all kinds of subjects, fictional, non-fictional, uh, poetry, novels, short stories, comic books, graphic novels, they all have one thing in common and that's empathy. And I think that in those early days of the pandemic, the days of panic buying, the days of it's only the clinically vulnerable that are affected, therefore the rest of us don't need to worry. What was shown up was a deficit of empathy amongst people in power. And what has now happened, at least as far as I can see, is there has now been an uptick in people saying, actually, no, these people are not people that we can just dismiss they're not people that we can scapegoat they're not people that we can ignore they're not people that we can say are less than us just because they are different from us and that I think may be the only glimmer of hope that we have at the moment and as, you know, vaccine rollouts are beginning in places and more and more studies are being done and things are slowly looking like they might return to something like normal soon. Although, of course, 
for the people that have lost loved ones to COVID. Normal no longer exists and won't be coming back. But as things generally start to return to maybe something that reminds some of us of how things were pre-pandemic, the only thing I'm really hoping for is that the empathy that's pushed its way up through a wall of um, self-interest, of abuse of power, of damaging damaging things like um, racism, ableism, and all those things that have exacerbated what was already a terrible situation. I have to hope that those little shoots of empathy will remain in place. And my way of standing up for it, for empathy, which is, I believe, the closest that humans can ever come to having a magic power to be empathetic. My way of standing up for it is talking, like now, like I'm doing to you. Because for a long time I was too scared to talk about my mental health issues, to talk about my disability, to talk about the way I felt. Because I had a myriad of people telling me that my experiences weren't valid. Because they weren't normal. But those days are long past now and I can talk about it openly. But also my writing and my creative endeavours, they're the way that I cope with the bad times because, by God, I still have a lot of bad times. But they're also my hope for better ones. And I sincerely hope that all of you out there listening stay safe and stay kind and stay hopeful and I wish you all happiness thank you very much and thank you Natalie for coming on to Silent Journeys and being willing to share this journey I certainly appreciate you being uh, so willing to be vulnerable with uh, myself and yourself, but as well as the audience listening. Um, I can't thank you enough. If you'd like to hear other stories, you can do so on my website, msbivens.com, or anywhere that you get your audio. If you want to amplify this story and help others hear it, you can do so by sharing, rating, and reviewing on your audio app of choice. Thank you for listening today on Silent Journeys.